Welcome to the Multifamily Hangout, your gateway into the vibrant world of multifamily living. Are you ready to join industry leaders, exploring challenges, discovering solutions, and sharing invaluable wisdom? Our hosts, Adrian Danila and Nada Urias, will be your guides through these enriching conversations. Let's dive in. This is another episode of the Multifamily Hangout. I'm going to start by acknowledging our friends from Apartment Snapshot. They are powering this podcast, so they're making this podcast possible. The revolutionary platform, the first gamified performance and employee engagement tool designed explicitly for multifamily professionals is transforming the way we approach performance and employee engagement in an industry. Thank you again, our friends from Apartment Snapshot, and I'm going to Turn it over to Naida to introduce our special guest today. Hello, everyone. Thank you again for being with us, hanging out with us on another Thursday afternoon. Today, we have Felicia Queen. She is the founder of Powerhouse, and we definitely are going to learn more about her story and her experience, what she's done. So we're very excited. Welcome, Felicia. Thank you so much for having me here today, Nada and Adrian. I know I kept saying I was excited. and. You're supposed to say that, but I really was. I'm very excited to be here today. (laughs) Can you tell the audience about yourself? Just tell them your story. So I've been in multifamily for uh, quite some time, uh, a little over four decades, actually. And I have spent most of that time focusing on um, developing people. And that is something that's very near and dear to my heart. I started off like a lot of people do in this industry. I had no intention of going into it. And I think a lot of people are in that, uh, in that same space and wound up taking a job that I wasn't even sure I wanted. And it turned out to be one of the best journeys I could possibly imagine. So I worked for a prominent property management company is owner managed for 15 years. The gentleman who owned it and was the founder uh, was my mentor. And he's literally the most brilliant human being I've ever met. And especially someone who was an icon and a maverick in this industry. So, so I've had quite a bit of a journey. I left there, went into consulting and I've been doing that for some time. I work with a, a lot of uh, companies on how to improve their bottom line. But we do most of that focused on how to get better employee engagement, um, better employee performance, and also a level of process performance as well. Felicia, employee engagement. Walk us through the process, please, of how do you assess the level of engagement and then what are the steps to improve? What are some you know really good tips to improve employee engagement? Okay, so for as far as assessing it is concerned, there are you know a number of platforms out there in which you can assess it. Here's the really important part about employee engagement. Employee engagement is correlating, not necessarily causated. And so you have to have a lot of things in place to get good employee engagement, regardless of the people you're actually hiring. Some of that is you want to make sure that you have good processes in place. You also want to make sure that people are trained on their specific duties and skills when they first start. 
you want to make sure that you're giving them um, lots of ways that they can grow, both personally and professionally, while they're in your employee. There are certain things like we call these hygiene-type situations where you want to make sure that there are certain things in place, like are there good benefits, good salary, things along those lines. There are five of those. And if you think of it like you're choosing a surgeon... So if you wanted to choose a surgeon, you'd want to get the best one you possibly could. But you also want to make sure that they wash their hands before they start the surgery. So the hygiene is kind of like the washing of the hands. How about company culture? How important is culture in this picture? Culture is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, You might want to have to hook me off the stage for this one. Uh, But I was so fortunate when I first got into the industry what I told you that I wasn't even sure I wanted this job. And I will tell you, when I was first there, I was very lucky that I was promoted to the corporate office really quickly. I started off um, in an apartment community as what would now be an assistant manager. We had very different titles back then. And when I got to the corporate office, I did a lot of troubleshooting. And I remember thinking to myself, all these other companies are so far ahead of us. And I thought about getting another job. Boy, am I glad I didn't. The owner of this company hired a consultant to come in. And he took us through what I called the great empowerment experiment. And he set it up so that we were all empowered to make our own decisions and things like that. This consultant took us through so much training. Some of it is what we would call leadership training now, but a lot of it was even just self-awareness and self-influence and things like that that we needed to take before we even got to that leadership part of it. And so from a corporate perspective, we set up this unbelievable culture. It was fabulous. What he did that I see lacking a lot of times now is he recognized that culture is probably more important at the site level than it is at the corporate level. And if you look at what we have now is we have a lot of microcultures and we take people who barely, if they have any leadership training or anything like that, we put them in charge of these microcultures. Well, if the microcultures aren't working well, then it doesn't even matter what the, the overall corporate culture is. So while you have to have that good corporate culture, the only way to make it sustainable and growing over time is to have all of the microcultures or the team cultures in place. And that's so important. That's one of the things we work on every day now is, is those team, I call them team cultures, microcultures. You want to look at high performance teams. How do they function and have the cultures of your teams set up? so that they're able to achieve these high performance levels. And it doesn't matter what the background of anybody is who works there or anything like that. You can have the best corporate culture with people who had no idea what the word culture even meant before they got there if you just approach a problem. I'm going to turn over to uh, to Naida to ask her next question because I have several questions to go back on culture. But I, I do monopolize the conversation. I was going to say, we can continue on the culture because I think that that's definitely important and important conversation. So no, go ahead. Ask your questions. You strike the chord when you said the culture at the site is more important than corporate culture, right? To me, culture is the sum of all employees, like all, all members of that organization are behaviors, right? 
whether yes. we're talking about micro at the site level or macro at the corporate at a comp- company level, right? All the employees that are part of the company. Now, it's extremely hard for companies that are large to keep the same culture throughout the organization, right? Corporate and site, and you know all site levels. It's uh, to me, uh, culture is like so many micro, so many tribes, so many small tribes, and mm-hmm. they're revolving around the leaders of those tribes. You know, their community manager and service manager at the site level. A lot of times, the regional manager is part of that team too. When there's a strong personality, a person that's like very passionate about leadership, you could tell that they create a culture for their entire portfolio. So that's kind of like, that kind of bleeds through their entire portfolio, property to property to property. Is this something that, you know, you're noticing as well? Uh, or is it uh, your experience different? I see that quite a bit. One thing that I find very interesting is since we do a lot of promoting from within, I work with a number of clients who do that. I also work with other clients who don't. But interestingly enough, I see a lot of times when the regional manager has been promoted from within, they frequently, when they first start being a regional manager, what they really are being is what I call a super manager. And unfortunately, that frequently leads to micromanaging of their property managers who may have been very good to begin with, but then they actually start regressing in in their, it's not that their competence regresses, but the competence that they show regresses because they just get to a point they feel like the regional may be just trying to do their job for them. I've seen that happen a lot. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be more experienced regional managers, but you can also see another group where the regional manager says, you know what, my job now is to develop the people who work on site and be a resource for them and a support for them. And that, and also have their backs when it comes to potentially interference from the corporate office and things like that. You see every version in between those two end pieces as well. But that's what I see a lot at the regional level. I'm picking up on something that you just said about micromanagers. My personal experience has been with micromanagers is that people micromanage mainly because they're insecure. They're not really, as an individual, they're not secure. So that, that's the main reason. Secondary reason is some people to make a point about their position of power. But I think that's also like a manifestation, hidden manifestation of insecurity as well. That's, that's again, just personal observation. Are you agreeing with this assessment, first of all? And second of all, can a person that's insecure, an individual that's insecure, be a real leader? So it depends on the individual. And it depends on how they are sort of helped along the way. Some people can't. Some people just being insecure is part of their personality. And, and they don't know how to get from that to being secure. However, I've trained a lot of people who, quite frankly, I wasn't sure they were going to be able to jump the chasm, so to speak. And they did. And they became fantastic managers and fantastic leaders. So one of the things that I found is you have to know how to approach developing them. I'm trying to get away from even using the word training. Training to me is like is for you know basic skills. Developing is taking that person and developing 
their overall growth over time. It is possible for someone who starts off insecure, but they do have to learn how to get over their insecurities. So in answer to your question, they do have to get to a point where they're not insecure before they can be really good at what they do, but they can start off as being insecure. I think a lot of us have experience with micromanagers, um, either if you've experienced having a micromanager as a supervisor or actually are the micromanager. Um, I, I think, you know, we can definitely uh, relate on those two things. But since we're talking about the culture, I also wanted to, to piggyback on something that you had talked about earlier about um, if a positive leader creates a positive environment or negative creates a negative environment. I think it's all about the energy that you put out. So I think that if you... It, as the leader, your team comes to you, looks up to you for that leadership. And so if you do create that sort of environment, that's exactly what you're going to get. So if you have, if you're a leader and you have a lot of turnover within your, your team, I think that that's something that you also should reflect on. Is it me? Am I the problem? Because a lot of times that's what it is. And, you know, I think also, Adrian mentioned how sometimes it's one of those things where you're just like, well, I'm the boss, I'm the leader, and this is what it is. And trying to kind of uphold some sort of, I guess, pedestal, I guess, and and that's not the way to go. Definitely. I used to always say, if you have to tell people you're the boss, then there's a problem. Yeah, there's and a problem. Yes, I can't tell you how many yeah. communities I've gone into where the property manager is literally telling the other team members, I'm the property manager. You have to do what I say. And if they're having to do that, there's an issue. As you said, they need to reflect from within. I have seen that be able to be turned around. You do really have to have the skill to work with somebody like that to get them turned around. The most important aspect of a high-performance team and think of when we're talking about microcultures, a high performance team is a microculture that we're looking to get. And by the way, one of the things you'll find about our company is we are very focused on what has been statistically and or scientifically proven. This came from the um, Aristotle study that was done by Google a few years ago. I think it was 2017. If not, it was 2018. And they found basically there were five things that high performance teams had to have. The most important one that was the most difficult to find was psychological safety. And psychological safety is where, you know, it sounds like everybody's walking on eggshells and, you know, nobody wants to hurt anyone's feelings or anything like that. It's really not like that at all. Psychological safety is about no blaming, no shaming, no naming. And being able to have conversations about what's going on within the team and the performance and things like that. and each person being able to put forth their ideas. And if they notice something happened that whether it be good or bad, be able to talk about it and not only know they're not going to be shut down, but that people are going to listen to them and potentially even do something about it. And it and even if it's even if it's my teammate. So Nada, if you and I are on a team where there's a high level of psychological safety. And you feel like there's something that I agreed to do that I'm not doing that or that I'm making some mistake. And maybe I'm not even aware that I make that mistake. You would feel very comfortable to point that out to me. And I'd listen to it. And I 
I might disagree. And by the way, we might go behind closed doors and we might have a very loud disagreement. It's okay. Because what we're going to do is we are going to listen to each other and we're going to work it out in some way, shape or form. Maybe not right up at that very moment, but we are going to work through this. One of the things that they found, let's look at the opposite situation. And they were this example I'm going to use is from another study on high-performance teams, which, by the way, found the same things. And all of the things they thought would lead to a high-performance team, like having the, the most skilled people and the most experienced and the most educated and all of these things on the team, they found out those had absolutely nothing to do with whether that team was high-performance or not. What they did find that was very interesting is they expected... This was in a hospital setting that they studied this, and they expected high-performance teams to make the fewest mistakes. No, they had the most mistakes. But the reason they had the most mistakes is because they were the most reported mistakes. And what they found was, and I realize this isn't property management, this is healthcare, but it really applies to our site teams as well. What they found was that where there was no little psychological safety, For example, nurses would be afraid to tell the doctor that they shouldn't prescribe a specific medication because it's going to interfere with something else the other person's taking and possibly be deadly. At a high-performance team, they would feel comfortable that they could speak up to the doctor and the doctor may not like it, but the doctor would listen to them and they weren't going to lose their job or perhaps a promotion or something like that along the lines because they stood up to the doctor. So that's what psychological safety is. It's the ability to have this like ritualized vulnerability. You can say whatever you believe and you're not going to be kicked out, so to speak, as a result of it. It's very fascinating what what you just said, what you just described this uh, experiment. Because we have in property management, in maintenance especially, we have a safety, I guess, concept. It's called zero accidents. The companies that are pushing for zero accidents, I, as a my personal opinion, I believe that zero accidents is not a great approach because it puts the pressure on people to not report when there's an accident. They will try to hide because if there's pressure coming from the top that says zero accidents, basically it says zero mistakes, right? We're, right. we're not making mistakes here, which is completely honestly ridiculous from a human perspective. We're so prone to make mistakes. We're making mistakes all the time. For someone who says we have zero accidents right here, I think just says the unrealistic expectation and it opens the door to hiding possible liabilities that could turn into like huge situations. Someone could, you know, get very sick. Someone could lose their life and, you know, companies could have like huge financial losses. So it's, it's very fascinating that, you know, you, uh, you gave this example. I hope that we have all their professionals that are like into the safety part of the family. And then uh, I would love to get some feedback from them on what I just said. You know, is this a realistic policy? Is this a good policy for companies to have a zero accident expectation, right? Or the goal to have zero accidents? I say as a goal, is great to have zero accidents. Nobody wants to get hurt. Or to have a coworker getting hurt, but to make that to push for zero accidents creates a situation where people, would, uh, you know, will be inclined to hide the truth. Yeah. Well, and especially if it's incentivized, because a lot of times these types of programs are incentivized. One thing we really we have a 
couple of different things that I call specialties that we do. And one of them is actually setting up incentive programs that make sense to what you're actually trying to accomplish. In the last, I don't know, five to eight years in our area, I'm right outside of DC, we've had at least three that I can think of apartment buildings explode because of gas leaks. And in at least one of them, that it wasn't the the property that was the problem. They kept calling um, the local gas company. The problem was not being reported by the people at the gas company who was check- who were checking it out. And people died as a result of this. So imagine that this is incentivized. I mean, for heaven's sake, even if you just look at the way we incentivize leasing, which is which I think is good, by the way, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with it. I see people all the time sort of maybe push off like an approved lease to the next week so that they can have more, so they can get a bigger commission. You know, just different things like that, how they claim the people who are walking in the door. So we have to be very careful about how we incentivize things like that, especially when there's a safety issue. You mentioned incentivize, and um, I have a question for you here. I think there's two ways to gain a certain type of behavior. One, you know, one way is to incentivize it, like to pay, to bribe, to tell, you know, a group of employees or people like, if you're going to do this, you're going to get something, right? Or there's right. a monetary incentive or something else or praise, whatever. So you, you pay for that to happen, right? For that right. expected, expected behavior. The other one is to enforce it. To impose it by force. In your opinion, which one of the two is the most effective? You almost have to take a combination of the two. And what I mean by that is, in a lot of cases, if the incentive is set up correctly, then incentivizing is fine. Let me go to something that's not a safety issue. So I work with a lot of communities on how to make sure that they're collecting all the money that they're supposed to. And one thing we have a huge issue with in our industry is accountability. And it's not so much that you know, we, we may blame people and say they're not taking accountability for their actions. The truth is, most of the time, we've never figured out who should have accountability for what. So in this collection class that I teach, we have a whole class on preventing delinquencies. And there's a question in the beginning of the, the class before that, where I basically ask, you know, it's a true false question. The leasing team has a huge influence on your rent collections. And it's, it's extremely true. They should, they really have the most influence, believe it or not. It all has to do with how they move people in. So what I generally say to everybody at that point is if you want them to, to have the type of influence that you want, they already have influence. So you want to head it in the right direction, then hold them accountable so that anybody who moves in, if they're late during the first three months they live there, because a big problem in the industry is people moving in and being late the next time rent is due. That should not be happening. You can almost eliminate that by just holding the leasing consultant accountable. They don't have to collect, but they do have to get the person back in. And even if you don't teach them, train them, any better ways to do the move-in orientation, anything that way, you will see your first payment defaults drop by likely about 75% just by starting that process, that policy. I want to switch it, switch gears a little bit. Now we've been talking about lots of good stuff, but I also wanted to ask you about 
changes in the industry. So as we know, multifamily is always constantly changing and we're adapting to using a lot more technology and things like that. So how do you see leadership evolving to meet the industry's changing demands? I Well, a couple things. One, let's talk about the technology just in general. First of all, I love technology. I may be somebody who's been around for a while, but I'm a, a techie gadget person. I love every new thing that comes out. And I want to try it out and, and see how it works. What I think we need to do as leaders is I think we need to really make a decision that makes sense when it comes to adapting technology. First of all, any consulting uh, gig I go into, the first thing we look at is I call it first do no harm. So are we implementing something that's actually going to become a burden to the site? Or are we implementing something that's going to help them? We need to look at that. I think we need to be looking at a lot more technology that actually takes the volume of work off of the site team. Everybody talks about centralizing and things that way. I'm not sure even how much of that we have to do if we could just take some of the volume off of the folks on site. Um, and there's a lot of technology out there that will do it. Unfortunately, that's not the stuff that, that we tend to buy. And if we don't tend to buy it, then the companies that are providing these things aren't going to make it. Because face it, they come up, I've worked on the prop tech side a lot. And a lot of times you'll have a group of people who are basically sitting in a, a room going, okay, what can we sell next? And they're not necessarily, I don't mean this in an evil way. They're not necessarily sitting there saying, okay, how can we make this whole process work better? They may not even understand the process at all. They might just have something that they've invented and they're trying to see how a huge industry like multifamily could use it and become customers of theirs. So we have to be very aware of that. Another thing too is I really feel like a lot of times our leadership needs to open their doors a little bit when um, they're deciding on new technology and bring people from the site in during the demos and during the decision-making process. Because I find a lot of our platforms are really complicated out on the site and actually add to their workload instead of taken away. And then I may go back to the corporate office and say, hey, you know, th this is an issue out there. And they're saying, no, we were told that we have this in, in our property management software and it'll just do it. But they don't understand that just doing it isn't what the site needs. They have to go through 12 steps in order for it to just do it. So we need to look at a lot of those things. Like I said, anything that'll make it easier on the site will make reporting more efficient. There's nothing worse. I was in a, uh, an office a couple of days ago, and I was looking at this email that it took the property manager four hours to put together, and not because she was messing around. She was just trying to get it all done. So it took her four hours to get the right reports pulled and for the right dates and make sure everything was in there and everything was right to send over to the owner. That should be an automated process where she should just be able to, you know, to click a button and automatically all of those reports get generated. Frankly, it should automatically attach to the email she's going to send, or maybe it just sends it itself. A lot of times with sales, people are having to put together sales reports, even though they have all of the information and nobody really has to do anything more than just click a couple of buttons and, and just have that stuff produced. So we're really missing the mark on this. We have all this great technology available and we're not even using it. And But what happens is everybody wants to grab the shiny object. 
So the cool thing, that technology, we tend to just buy because we think our residents are going to want it. And a lot of times, I'm not even sure we're asking the residents if that's what they want. I think leadership really needs to take a look at all of that. And by the way, there are a lot of great leaders out there who are doing this. So if you're one of them, please, I'm not talking about you. I think what happens, though, is especially post-pandemic, everybody is getting just slammed constantly with all of this new stuff. And it's hard to keep up with it. Personally, if it were me, I would take a break and I would actually come up with a plan for what it is that we would be looking for in order to take our company to the next level and also have a matrix that we use whenever we make a decision. And I would take that and utilize it for at least the next year and actually stack everything according to the goal we're trying to, to reach. You touched one of the many things that I'm passionate about, technology. And I have a, a couple of questions there. But before I go to my questions, Felicia, I do want to acknowledge those of you that join us today. And, you know, thank you very much for being here. I see lots of comments. I do want to ask you to be a little patient. We're going to take your questions, some of your questions, and ask Felicia. And if you would uh, be kind, just type in a comments box, you know, your name and where you're from. Sometimes on our platform, there's not complete integration, so we don't really see your names. Like we just see like LinkedIn user on the platform, and we don't have the possibility to kind of watch both platforms, LinkedIn and uh, the one with broadcasting from. So if you don't mind just saying hi, type in your name and where you're from, just so we could see who, who do we have with us today. That'd be amazing. And I encourage you to ask questions. Uh, we will take your questions. We promise that. Back to the technology, to the prop tech, Felicia. Mm -hmm. My experience is that, as a rule, the way a technology piece comes to life is someone has a, an idea that something might work, and they're hiring someone that could write code or a fancy you know, like a developer, someone that could you know build that product that bring it to life, uh, and they also hire people that will sell the product. And you have these two entities, but then the end user is nowhere present in this picture. Therefore, these two, first of all, the sales people, they're in to sell the product, wherever the product is, that's their main goal and probably the only goal. The developers are developing something that they don't have any knowledge or uh, like real life knowledge if it's going to work or not, because, you know, they never been the, uh, the end user. I'm seeing this over and over again. You mentioned the shiny object. This is exactly 100%. The salespeople go all the way up to the top of the organization, like president, vice president, CEO level. They do a presentation and the CEO looks at it and says, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a maintenance product. You know, that person that makes the final decision, they never been in maintenance. They never been an end user. They don't understand what the end user needs. They make a decision because it looks so cool, right? That we're going to take this, we're going to roll it out. They push it down to the sides. And what happens next is, you know, people are struggling using it. They hate using it. And you end up with like very low adoption rates. And eventually that's not going to end up being a successful product because companies are going to be, you know, sooner or later, they're going to be looking at efficiencies and usage and say, well, we don't get the adoption rates. Like people don't use this. Like we can't make them use it. And eventually end up in being a very unsuccessful endeavor. Is this something that, you know, you're seeing and then... How do we correct this as an industry? What are some ways to overcome those obstacles? Not only do I see it, but one of the things that I'm finding is that 
more and more property management companies are, they're just exhausted from it, not just at the site level, but all the way up to the top. And so now we're, even though there is still shiny object syndrome, we, we're also getting to the point where even if we get something good, some companies have tried so many things out, they just need to take rest and, and they'll tell you that. I think it's so important for people to, for companies to include the end user. What I would love to see, if I had the means to do it, I'd set this up. And, and Adrian, I bet you anything you'd want to join me. <laughs> um, but I would love to see just, I, I think there is a company out there that's, that's trying to make this happen, but I'd love to just see some, some groups where, where they're just discussing what it is do they need. I also feel like there should be a platform or two that's a connector that they don't need all these different ways to log in and things like that. And that everybody understands that, oh, here's what I hear a lot of times, um, especially if I'm consulting with a prop tech company, I'll hear, oh, but all they have to do is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, all they have to do is that. Well, this maintenance tech that you want to do that also has like 10 tickets he has to run today. He's got to go all over the place. He may not have all the supplies that he needs for some reason. And he's getting stopped by residents for questions and just all kinds of things like that. And by the way, you're the 23rd company that has said, all they have to do is this. Sure, if that's the one thing they have to do, no problem. But if it's the 23rd thing, that's a problem. I think a really smart company would come along and start looking at how many pieces are there that need to, to be streamlined into one thing. I understand, you know, I used, it used to drive me crazy when I see the big management platforms start buying all these companies and things like that. But I do understand now, you know, because I, I would call on companies and they'd say, well, if you don't integrate with our software, we're not going to use you. Even though they didn't understand that integration doesn't always mean what they think it does. I do get it because it's just such a burden on the site. And it's not just the office. It is the maintenance techs too. I have a real heart for our service techs for a lot of reasons. I actually started a maintenance training academy about... 35 years ago, because we were hiring people who just didn't know what they were doing, and they wanted to know what they were doing. And so we figured out a way to, to make that happen. And I'm actually kind of surprised when we, because Adrian, I know you talk about this a lot. I'm actually really surprised as we're trying to recruit people and they don't have enough training. It was not that expensive to make that happen. And our facilities not only functioned better, but good grief, you get to a point after a while that if you don't have people who know how to do drywall and you've got them in there making poor repairs, the whole property starts looking bad. So just one little tweak like that can make such a difference. Let's talk about career development, uh, which I know that that's something that, that you also play a part in uh, with our multifamily folks. So what advice would you have for an individual that's looking to climb the ranks and make a meaningful impact in the industry? Basically three things, three simple things, but put them on repeat. One, learn as much as you can. I think a lot of times people get into a job and they think all they really have to know is their job or maybe the next job, the one they, they, they think they want next. There are so many things going on 
just keep learning. Our industry is changing very quickly, like with the technology and things that way. And with advertising, look at all the different types of social media. We're going to start seeing other types of, of ways to get through to people. There are so many things you can do. Learn everything that you can and don't just learn how to do it. Learn why it's done and why it's necessary. The second thing, do hard things. This industry requires a tremendous amount of resilience. And the only way you gain resilience is to do hard things. So you may be complaining a little and things like that while you're doing it, but don't stop. Just, you know, just keep working at it. I can't tell you how many things during my career that I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I, I just like probably the third month that I was at my first job, there was this huge government layoff. We lost 30% of our property. So 432 units lost, uh, what was that? 120 units. I had to lose those. I will tell you, it was really hard. Fortunately, though, since I was new to the industry, I didn't know it was any harder than any other time. So that actually helped my consulting career later on. I made a lot of money off of that later. And the reason that I did was because once I got through it, every time we had a recession or, you know, just, just a change in the economy. So it was harder to lease. That was nothing compared to back then. Do hard things. It'll come in handy. Also network, really get to know people. I know Adrian, I'm speaking your language here. Uh, you're, you're the master at it. <laughs> um, you should probably be talking about this, not me, but networking is so key. And it doesn't mean you have to go to every association meeting or anything like that, but those are good. Network on social media, network on LinkedIn. There's even a lot of Facebook networking, things that way, Twitter even. I have met people from all over the world from social media, and there are a couple of them. Uh, there's, there's one in Dubai that has helped me with a number of things having to do with employee experience and employee engagement. And even with all the experience I have, she's really opened my eyes to a few things. So you just, it's not just who you know, it's also what they can teach you. As we promise, I uh, want to take some questions from the audience that they were uh, sent to us. The first one comes from Damian. He wants to ask you, Felicia, how do you stay hopeful when business is super slow? What things motivate you to keep going? Can give you a very funny answer because the last three years was probably a really good example of that. Just stay focused on the goal and just keep working toward it. It's not easy. And I will tell you, there are days that you wake up and you know it's slow and you just have to keep moving forward. So this is one of my favorite sayings. Remember, you were sane when you made the plan. So be sure to plan as much as you can. It doesn't mean the plan's going to work out the way that you set it up. But at least if you have it, you have some actions you can take to keep moving forward and find some positive people to hang out with. I also want to just talk about when it comes to um, community engagement, that's something that's also very important as well, right? Uh, especially when you're on site. What role does community engagement play in the success of these communities of our properties? And how do you approach enhancing it? Community engagement is very important. And I think communities kind of have their own personality, their own tribe, so to speak. I lived in a neighborhood that had the most community engagement. This was not an apartment community, but it had the most community engagement that I think exists in the entire country. People would move into this neighborhood sometimes, you know, in their early 20s. 
and just not leave. They just get a bigger and bigger house along the way. And a lot of it had to do with just people interacting with each other and getting to know each other. Now, having said that, I've worked with a couple of apartment communities, two of them that were actually out of Baltimore, but it doesn't matter where they, they are, where the residents, because particularly because of the way they were treated when they moved in and they got to know each other and we had great amenity spaces and things like that for them to have parties and things. It seems like I, I see so many community managers who are asking people like, what are you doing for, for resident events this month and things like that. These two communities, we never planned any events. The residents planned them all and then invited us to go to them. So just getting that engagement, I know now there are a lot of different technologies to assist with that. And I really believe that that's something that every community, I don't care what type it is, I don't care what the demographic is, I think that anything you can do, any platform where you can get people talking to each other, et cetera, and interacting is a great thing to do. We have such a low amount of connection these days that anything we can do to make that better, and connection, by the way, is one of the top three most important things for both mental health and for physical wellness. So it's important. How many years have you been a consultant for the industry? 33. What are the best pieces of advice that you could share with someone in the audience that might be planning to do this for a career, to become a consultant, to work for themselves, and be a consultant for the industry, for industry in particular? Well, a couple things. One, don't hit your, quit your day job until you have enough money coming in. And I say that because a lot of times people don't have a plan yet before they do anything. What happens is they wind up taking jobs they probably shouldn't because they're just trying to get the money, not necessarily make the most impact. It's very important to not only network with people, but my favorite thing to do is to collaborate with other people. You know, when I first started this, gosh, everyone was so competitive. Uh, one of the things I love about the industry now is people are friends and they know they might work with each other at some point and things like that. So they really try to build these relationships. And then once you build the relationships, you can build the company you're working with and then you can go out on your own and you can you know, build your network. I even benefited from this a little bit back when I started because the man that I worked for, when I told him what I wanted to do, I sat in his office and I kid you not, he called all his friends and all of his friends owned a lot of apartments and said, she has made me so much money. You need to talk to her. And he literally sat there and had me scheduled like every day the following week to go meet with people. And all I did was meet with them and tell them what I could do for them. And they just hired me. That's not going to happen for everybody. And it certainly doesn't even happen for me now, <laughs> at least not all the time. Just having a network, though, that can do something like that. And you never know who it's going to be. Definitely do that. Make sure you know what types of things you can offer. If, try to stay focused, though. People make the mistake sometimes of trying to be everything to everyone. Find your one thing. Do that well. Get yourself a reputation. And then you can add things to it. So, and, and by the way, one thing might be several different services that accomplish this one big goal, and that's okay. But just make sure you're not trying to be everything to everybody. Felicia, full-time employed versus self-employed versus fractional work. 
I think the overwhelming mindset is that, you know, people do want to be fully employed, full-time employed. I never really considered up until like, you know, maybe six, seven months ago to go work for myself. I always wanted to have a full-time job. And I still don't think that it's anything wrong with a full-time job. I'm looking at employment as a thinking like it would be an investment, right? The, the way we make an investment. I guess one of the most common pieces of advice when you make an investment is that don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Why is it that we go for full-time employment as our main goal? Most people do, right? The overwhelming majority. And they could go from like 100% to zero, right? When you get laid off. I got laid off twice last year, for example. Right. That's just personal experience. And you go from making 100% income to zero dollars. Or when you get laid off, something happens, you lose your job. Versus doing fractional work and doing a little bit here, a little bit there, a decent amount that allows you to make a living. Now, if you have, you know, three, four fractional engagements and you lose one out of four, it's only 25% of your income, let's say, if you're making about the same money on each versus you lose, you lost your job and you're down to zero. What do you think that, you know, makes people tend to strive for full-time employment outside the benefits, right? Because then, you know, when you work for yourself, really, you know, you either have to have someone a spouse to cover for your benefits or you have to pay yourself. Besides that, what other reasons would be, you know, is it culture? What is it? You know, why do we have this mindset that most of us are chasing the full-time opportunity versus, you know, fractional employment? I think it kind of depends on where you are in life. So there could be a circumstance where you've been laid off a couple of times. So that was your circumstance. You're also a point in life where... As far as I know, anyway, you don't have small children at home. You're not trying to just be focused on like more on raising your family and then just having and having a good job where you have a good income. It really just depends on where you are. Because you were talking about with a fractional, how you would have, you know, if you lost one, you only lost 25% of your income if you have four of them. I think that people need to look at multiple streams of income in a lot of different ways. I don't see how anyone can make it these days without multiple streams of income, unless that stream just happens to be a huge company that they own. <laughs> there are lots of ways that they can be making income. And remember, I said, you know, make sure you don't quit your day job until you at least have, you know, a plan and finances and everything. If you're building some types of streams of income while you're an employee, then if you want to leave, you can focus on the work as you're building whatever it is that you're looking to build and not have to potentially make some bad decisions based on what your needs are. I was a single self-employed mom with no child support, and I made a couple of those decisions along the way. At the time, it was very difficult to do multiple streams of income. We didn't have social media. There are a lot of things that didn't exist then. It was, very, it was actually looked down upon you know, to be that way. You needed to be very just focused. But having said all of that, I do believe that whatever you decide to do, there are just different people who have different needs. Even when I look at when I'm working with companies about their their development programs, their training and development programs for people, I have them look at it in three groups of people. So you're, there's like your high achievers, who are usually your top 10%. And they want promotions and they want more money and they want all of this. And they're at a point in their life where they can, they want to fly. And so you really want to develop them and you want to, you know, help them along. Then there's a huge group that really is 
where they want to be and they want to do a good job and they may still want some training and development because they know at some point, you know, maybe it's somebody who's focused on that because of, you know, family needs or something along those lines. And some people just aren't really made for, for self-employment. That's just not the way that they think and the way that they want to behave. So it really just depends on the individual. Being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart, as you know. Even though I encourage everyone who wants to be one to be one, I don't necessarily think it's the right path for everybody. And even the entrepreneurs need people to work for them. When I first started doing it, probably the first 10 years, I was flying high and I thought everybody should be an entrepreneur. But as time went on, I realized it's just not for everybody. Having said that, though, I do want to add one thing, that if you've decided to be an employee, you're investing in that company as much as they're investing in you, if not more. And I do believe that we all deserve to be treated well and that we all deserve that psychological safety and everything else. So I would also encourage people, that's an investment too. And if you're going to invest your you're you're not just investing your time. A lot of people are investing their lives. Then you want to do it for a company that is not only treating you well, but they're growing because this group of people has come together with a similar mindset to make things happen. Awesome, awesome. Well, we're almost coming up to time. It's almost it's three fifty nine now. Well, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. <laughs> It's nice to, to have high-level conversations, and uh, and this was a good one. I appreciate you all having me on. Thank you. As both of you know, um, I love having long-winded conversations, so <laughs> deep conversations. Including, deep conversations. On a, including on a Sunday afternoon. That's right. That's right. You're, I, I did forego the 5 a.m. one for 7, but I <laughs> <laughs> you you you're one of the very few people that I could talk on a Sunday. Oh, I appreciate that. It was a great uh, conversation. Okay. Felicia, I want to thank you for being here with us. Uh, I do want to ask you to share some final thoughts that you have. Besides what I, I just said about looking at what you do as an investment, I really think in our industry right now, multifamily is at a point right, right now where it could really, uh, I sort of say explode, but I'm going to use a different term. I'm going to say blossom. We're at this point right now where we've got like this, this beautiful thing that's growing and it could really turn into something great. And it's, it's come from, from a tough, some tough spots. This is really the time for us to really think about using our wisdom and not just our excitement and intelligence. Let's make things sustainable so that whatever we're building right now within the industry that we can keep building on instead of having to recreate all the time. Now, when I say building on, I'm not saying we can't re-engineer it frequently. There's no sense in it having to just almost fall apart at points and then add something to it. Let's just keep building. Let's make it greater. And let's treat our people well, because, because that's what makes it happen. How can someone watching this live or you know watching the recording later on can get in touch with you, can reach out to you? First of all, you can reach me through LinkedIn and, and just DM me from uh, from there. You can email me at fqueen at powerhouse.co, and it's co.com. Just reach out. I'd love to hear from anybody. You know, I look forward to lots more conversations, and I want to be in the room when we get everybody together, and the room can be a room like this that's virtual, 
where we're talking about how do we build the stuff from here on out? How do we take it to the next level? So any of you hear about it, if I don't know, I want to be there. So invite me. <laughs> I'd love to have you part of that conversation. Actually, this is a great conversation topic in itself. It could be like a you know three-hour podcast about oh, yeah. envisioning the future, right? Uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you on. Thank you again for being here with us. Also, I do want to thank our partners from uh, Apartment Snapshot for powering this podcast. This wouldn't be possible without them, without their support. We thank them very much. And I do have an announcement to make, you know. Sadly, uh, Neida's uh, last appearance on the show is today. She decided to, uh, you know, she, she decided to, to move on to, uh, not be a part of the show. Uh, and she has her reasons and it's, it's not a negative thing, right? You know, she, she has priorities just like we all do. I want to wish her the most success. She's always, you know, welcome back here to guest host an episode with me uh, when she's available. Uh, I, I, I want to wish you the very best, Neda, and you know, thank you for everything you did for the show. Uh, again, don't become a stranger to me to the show. I, uh, I hope you'll uh, you, you'll be around uh, for the future yeah. because there's uh, there's just so much more excitement to come. Oh yeah, you know it, and thank you so much, Adrian, for just that call when you called me months ago and said, "Hey, let's do this," and uh, it's been a great, great ride. Um, but like you said, you know, I've got to do other things. And so, you know, it's just going to take me away from this. And so I'll still be watching. I'll be in the comments. So you guys will still see me around and you never know. I'll be back to maybe guest co-host every once in a while. Any final thoughts for the audience? I think I've made about all the thoughts I have for today, which is saying something. How about you, Neda? Any final message for now? No, no, no final message. Everybody, thank you so much for being here with us today at a multifamily hangout, hanging out with us. We have an amazing guest uh, next week. It's going to be someone that's been a, a CEO for two major property management companies in a country. Okay. I'm not going to say the name for right now, but I, I'm, I'm just think about this. Okay. This is going to be a quiz. He's been a CEO for Emily for many, many years and also for with partners. So I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, just stay tuned for, you know, for more updates on the show. And I hope you all have a great afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.